they're preferably allowed to burn fat and the body makes sure that happens. And so it just never, it never gets to the point where mitochondria is damaged enough that they can't use oxygen and cancer develops. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. We're supported by the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity, which advocates a simple CT scan to reveal your CAC score. So know your score and take action to prevent that premature heart attack. Everything you need to know will be right here. I'm here today with Dr. Stephen Hussey, and I noticed he did a tweet couple of weeks back uh, about heart disease and cancer and connections between the two so we struck up a conversation and then we decided we'd have a chat about it here and i think it'll be very interesting so great to meet you Stephen, on video yeah good to meet you as well it's happy to be here great stuff well you know this one heart disease and cancer i have a kind of an interest in cancer but i'm overwhelmingly because i work for irish heart disease awareness interested in the calcification scan atherosclerosis and and mainly heart disease as a modern degenerative disease but cancer i'm interested in but i found whenever i discuss it online i sometimes get attacked by the um the arch skeptics shall we say who hate anyone talking about cancer and diet and sugar and how it might be caused by lifestyle and diet. So I kind of steer clear of it a little, but I, I think what you raised there was a very interesting thing, how the two may be connected. So maybe in kind of layman's terms somewhat for the mass audience, discuss the whole ideas that we were raising there. That'd be great. Well, first, you know, I, I've, I've done a lot more, I've had a lot more interest in, in heart attacks and heart disease uh, because of my own personal story and how because I'm type one diabetic. So I've been told my whole life I'm predisposed to that sort of thing. And so I've, I've really looked into um, what I can do to prevent um, heart disease. Uh, but I'm just interested in health in general. So I, I look at anything. And so, you know, I came across um, Dr. Seafried's work um, uh, up in Massachusetts and how he's, you know, uh, cancer is a metabolic disease. Um, and then also he really builds off the work of, of Otto Warburg who I think back in the 1920s or 30s uh, won the Nobel Prize um, for showing that that um, cancer kind of has this this shift in metabolism, um, which is, is now dubbed the Warburg effect. Uh, so basically, what happens is you know your your uh, I mean kind of the way I see it and, and what I kind of wrote about in the blog is that you know when you're a zygote you know a, a sperm and an egg come together and that implants onto the side of the uterus, um, but before that happens um the the cell that you know our first cell doesn't have an oxygen supply and so what it is is kind of this rapidly dividing uh, anaerobic meaning without oxygen uh and undifferentiated cell uh, which is kind of what sounds like cancer um what cancer cells are but then as soon as that that cell gets an oxygen supply um you know as the diffusion happens from the mother's blood supply then that cell becomes aerobic it can use oxygen um, it can uh, differentiate into different types of cells. So it becomes a liver cell and a skin cell and those types of things. Uh, and it's, and it has more controlled division. And so to me, it means that the ability of the cell to use oxygen is key, um, for preventing cancer and what structures in our cells allow us to use oxygen are mitochondria. Um, they're there so that we can use oxygen and then harvest the bonds from our food, uh, the chemical bonds stored in food so that we can make ATP and make energy. Um, but if those mitochondria become damaged, then the cell is kind of forced to, since it can't use oxygen, it's forced to revert back to what I think is kind of an older way of doing things, which is what it was whenever, you know, it was that zygote uh, before it had implanted under the side of the uterus. And so it's kind of like the survival mechanism. Um, it, it, the cell wants to survive. It doesn't want to die. So it does this term fix, which is, you know, to become this rapidly dividing anaerobic without oxygen um, undifferentiated cell. And that is cancer. And I think it all stems from uh, the inability of our, our cell to use oxygen. So things we're doing in our lives uh, can damage mitochondria to the extent that our cells forced to do this other thing. So obviously it's a, it's a survival mechanism short term, but not so great long term. Um, but it's just kind of how the cells programmed. Um, so that's the, the cancer side of things. So since I've spent so much time uh, looking at heart disease um, and and the series of events that, that I think um, causes a heart attack, I think it's very relevant because I believe it's a shift in metabolism as well. Um, 
it's a kind of a forced shift in metabolism that uh, leads to uh, a certain series of events that causes tissue death in in um, in uh, in heart tissue, uh, and then it's not um, as often as we think caused by you know a severe stenosis or a plaque formation. So. Right. And I think it's probably broadly acknowledged. Well, I don't mean acknowledged, but broadly believed that, you know, 60 or 70 percent of heart attacks are plaque rupture related with a sudden blockage of an artery. And that causes lack of oxygen and flow to the muscle of the heart and the heart attack. And then another 30 or 40 percent can be electrical or metabolic or something else. So we can probably argue over the percentages. But you believe that quite a large proportion are related more to a metabolic crisis in the heart uh, and perhaps not so much uh, a percentage related to plaque rupture. So maybe talk about that crisis in the heart that occurs and what's going on there. Yeah, well, first I'll talk about the, the work that I looked at um, that kind of showed me why or put doubt in my mind that it was these blockages or plaques that was causing most of these and that was the work of a guy named Giorgio Baraldi, who is an Italian um, medical doctor who, who did research at uh, University of Milan, I think it was. He spent his whole life studying, doing autopsies on people who, who died um, on their hearts, doing autopsies on their hearts, whether they died of a heart attack or whatever, anything else, you know. And he found really interesting things. He found that, you know, some people had, you know, complete stenoses of arteries and they did not die of a heart attack. They died of like an accident or some other disease. Um, and they had never complained of heart. They had no medical history of heart disease whatsoever, but they had complete stenosis of these arteries. He found things like, like the heart, he, people that did die of a heart attack, um, you know, their heart attack happened, say over here, an area of the heart where like the left circumflex artery supplies blood, but the, but the blockage he found was over in the anterior descending artery. So it didn't make sense. Um, or he found that, there, there was a, a plaque formation, um, but it was really old uh, and the heart attack had just happened. So it was obvious that the plaque had been there a while. Um, the clot formation had been there a while, but the heart attack just happened. Or he'd find things like there, there was a plaque formation or a clot in the area where the heart attack happened, but the, the, the death of the tissue in the area was way bigger than the, the area that was restricted in blood flow. Um, so lots of things just weren't matching up. And so he did, um, you know, probably thousands of these autopsies. And what he did was he took plastic cast material and he injected it into the arteries of the heart. And then he, uh, I think he heated it and it hardened. That caused it to harden. And then he dissolved away the tissue on the outside and he had this perfect cast of the arterial system of the heart. And so he would look at different things and study different things uh, doing that. And one thing that he found was that anywhere there was a more than 70% stenosis of a coronary artery, they, um, the uh, body had built a collateral system of arteries that totally bypassed it um, on its own. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, sacrificing uh, blood supply. And he said that was everywhere, like every single time that there was a 70% stenosis. But one of his studies that he did, he said that in 50% of the hearts that he studied, there was no clot no stenosis, uh, and these are people that died of heart attacks, uh, no clot or no stenosis. And then in the other 50, um, he said that uh, in 93% of those 50, there was evidence that the heart attack uh, was not caused by the clot that was there, um, but that the clot that formed was um, sometimes happened after the heart attack happened. Um, or it was one of those things, like I described before, there was a clot, but it was in the wrong spot from where the heart attack happened and those types of things. But then he said there was, you know, a certain percentage of cases that there was a clot and it matched up exactly with where the heart attack happened. And so that that is def a definite possibility. But his work kind of threw all this doubt into this whole stenosis or, or clot theory of a heart attack, at least for the majority of them, uh, based on his work. And I've looked at other pathologists, too, and, and they, you know, nobody, none of them are really like, you know, definitive yes, this causes the vast majority of heart attacks, this stenosis or clot formation. Um, and so I really got into looking what does, what does cause these, these heart attacks. And I found that, um, you know, these stenoses or this atherosclerosis is still very relevant, um, but it's relevant in a different way. And so there's a series of events that, that I think 
leads up to the events that causes a heart attack. And they kind of have to happen, like, you know, when the stars align, you know, it's not like, that's why we don't see it happen in everybody all the time. But these three imbalances, I believe, are um, not being well fat adapted. Not saying you have to be in ketosis all the time, but, you know, being adapted to be able to burn fat and go back and forth, um, like metabolic flexibility. The second one is increased oxidative stress. Uh, so basically oxidative stress is, is when we have excess free radicals in our body. And free radicals are made just by when we, um, we make energy for fuel, uh, just like a car makes an exhaust when it burns fuel. There's a waste product. And our waste product is a free radical. And it's an unpaired electron and it likes to be paired. And so it will do anything that it, it can to be paired, including stealing an electron from another tissue, which can damage that tissue. Um, and so things that cause oxidative stress are like um, uh, burning too many carbohydrates can lead to um, more production of these free radicals, but also toxin exposure, you know, heavy metals and, and plastics and all these different things can act like free radicals, but high blood sugar will damage molecules in our body that can make them into free radicals. Uh, so there's all different kinds of things that can lead to oxidative stress. And then the third one is uh, an imbalance in your stress response. Um, so basically we have this autonomic nervous system that is perceiving our environment and telling your body whether it is in a safe or stressful environment or safe or threatening environment. Um, and if we, you know, if, if we don't develop properly when we're younger or we have traumatic events or we live a high stress life, we can get an imbalance in the stress response. And it's the thing that, you know, if these other imbalances are in place, the stress response can, um, you know, if we have a, um, a stress response without the concurrent, uh, non-stress response, balancing it out, uh, we can get what triggers the events that cause a heart attack. Um, so I can, I can string all those together if you're ready. Uh, or if you have any questions about that, we can talk yeah. about it first. We might pick a little on that and it's hard for me to recall everything is there, but I'll pick out some things. So just on the latter ones, the three, I think they're, they're very well formed. So the inability to build fat and metabolic flexibility speaks to the whole metabolic syndrome, diabetes dysfunction, you know, the ultimate people who can't burn fat properly and their glucose is high. The oxidative stress then is absolutely a given hyperglycemia and everything around oxidative stress including heavy metal and many other causes for someone who may not have a problem really with hyperglycemia or diabetes yet they still have heart problems you know there's so many other causes of oxidative stress and the last one actually the stress one that's interesting i know malcolm kendrick who has some very provocative blogs he thinks very strongly of stress as a potential large cause i not so much so but I don't think you're talking really about just generic stress. So someone who gets really stressed in a job and is really aggressive and driving for a result and then they back off afterwards and they calm down and relax, that, that's probably pretty ancestral and okay. But you're talking about a, a chronic, steady, underlying background stress that some people have that really re-encodes them and, and physiologically and biochemically, not, not just mentally. So maybe we'll tease that one out a little. Yeah. So, uh, our, our biologic stress response and this, uh, based on the work of, uh, Robert Sapolsky, um, at Stanford, uh, has, he's shown that, you know, our stress response is supposed to be like most of the mammals we see in the wild, which is, you know, it's pretty much a non-stress response until their life is threatened. Um, so something comes out of the bushes and tries to kill them and then they have a appropriate stress response and that, mobilizes their um, all kinds of metabolic processes to help them get away or fight off that stress. Um, and then he's, he's shown that if they, if they do get away, if they happen to get away, their, their stress response goes away. It's almost like it didn't even happen. Um, they're, they're not thinking about it anymore. Whereas we humans have the ability to overthink things. You know, our, our higher level thinking got us a lot of places, uh, but there's a bit of a mismatch right now. Um, because, you know, something stressful could happen to us and we could think about it the rest of the day, um, or the rest of the week, um, and, or fear that it's going to happen again, or we could see something stressful happen to someone else and fear that it's going to happen to us. Um, and lots of times we tend to have, you know, physiologic life-threatening responses to non-life-threatening things, uh, because we're thinking our way into the stress response. Um, and if we do that chronically and we don't have this healthy balance between stress and non-stress states, we can get stuck 
we can kind of downplay the activity of the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest state, and get an overstimulation of the sympathetic um, nervous system. And as you know, as I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about soon, that that I think is the the final kind of driving trigger that um, that triggers the events that that cause a heart attack, as long as those other imbalances are in place as well. And I think that it's evident when we see things like the majority uh, or the um, most heart attacks happen on Mondays, you know, or there was a study done in uh, somewhere in Europe, I think it was France, um, where they showed that heart attacks were more prevalent on stressful days of the year. So they found that the number one was, I think, Christmas Eve, which is unfortunate, um, and also what they call summer holiday, uh, and then sporting events uh, were a big trigger for heart attacks, apparently. Uh, and then they also found Mondays as well. So I think that that, I mean, it's just an association study, so you can't, you know, prove causation, but just that we see that association, I think, means that there's a pretty important aspect to uh, this stress response, uh, provided those other imbalances are in place as well. Yeah, and kind of the way I'd look at it is it's a contributory factor. There's many, many potential factors. So you might get those associations because it's certainly contributing acutely and chronically. Um, but then you've got loads of people who are actually quite relaxed and don't have issues. They get a massive heart attack because the other big factors have taken them down regardless of that one. So, you know, it's going to be a proportion where that's important. That's fair enough. And on the just circling back to the only other thing from your initial summary uh, was, oh, the causes. Yeah. Dr. Joseph Kraft, who I, I think you're familiar with, we myself and Dr. Gerber interviewed him back in 15 and he did 15,000 insulin assays and he was a pathologist and a chairman of the pathology department and basically a lifelong pathologist with enormous experience. But he actually himself tied many heart attacks to the tiny vessels in the IV septum, the intraventricular septum of the heart, and that hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia would damage all these microvessels, and then occlusion of those or vasculitis of these little vessels in the heart's rhythm center, the IV septum, could uh, trigger many heart attacks and sudden cardiac deaths. So I think the point is well taken that there's many different causes uh, but absolutely, it's probably time for you to get into your favored one around this metabolic problem that could cause many heart attacks. Well, well, even that one that you're describing there, like, you know, insulin uh, resistance and insulin issues, that's, that's a metabolic issue, you know, like that's, that's a problem with our, our metabolism. If insulin's too high, then, you know, we're fueling our body on the wrong things. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, we'll look at these, these, um, these three imbalances and how I think they directly lead to one cause of a heart attack. Um, and so let's say the person is, is relying on carbohydrates, you know, and the heart is, is it, it really prefers to burn fat and ketones. And I have multiple studies that show that. Um, and I think it, it has these mechanisms in place that allow it to be, it's almost like the body wants it to be the last thing to have to be forced to burn too much glucose because it's burned some glucose, but predominantly it burns, um, fat and ketones. And so like one being that a, a chylomicron is, you know, uptaken by the, um, digestive system and well, it can't really be uptaken. So it's put into the lymphatic system. Um, and that drains pretty much directly into the heart and it has to go into the lungs first, but then it comes back. And the first tissue that it goes to is the heart. So it's almost like the body's giving preference to those fatty acids in a chylomicron, uh, to the heart. And then also I, I found the study recently that shows that, um, the heart has this signaling mechanism that allows it to communicate directly with fat cells. Um, so it's almost like if, if it gets to a point where it's having to burn too much glucose that it, the signaling pathway happens and mobilizes fats and fat cells, uh, maybe to, to allow it to burn more fats, because as we'll see, I think if it's forced to burn predominantly glucose, uh, bad things can happen. And so, um, so that's the first thing is, is let's say someone is, is relying on carbohydrates. So I think that they're, you know, if this series of events happens, they're just more likely for the heart tissue to convert to predominantly burning glucose. Now, the second thing is the, um, uh, the oxidative stress component of it. So oxidative stress is, um, is doing a few things. One, I believe it's damaging the lining of the arteries. It's one of the things that, that causes that damage. And then um, the body reacts by um, building up cholesterol and minerals and things to um, kind of patch up that damage. And we get this atherosclerosis. But the problem with that 
is that um, the, the endothelia, the lining of our arteries is what's responsible for making nitric oxide. Um, so if we get a lot of damage to these tissues, they can't make nitric oxide at the amounts that they need. Um, and also nitric oxide can act like an um, a, um, antioxidant, neutralizing these free radicals. So if we have high oxidative stress, we're taking care or we're, we're getting uh, or depleting our nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is very important um, because it, it dilates the blood vessels, which is one thing that it does. But also, um, it's, it's necessary for that stress signal I was talking about, um, for the sympathetic signal to get into the cells. Uh, it doesn't need uh, any kind of thing to help it relay the message to the cells. But for the parasympathetic, which is our rest and digest um, state uh, and signal, it needs nitric oxide present to get into cells. Um, and this is some of the work of, of Stephen Poor just showing, you know, studying the stress response uh, on the heart and in mammals in general. But um, without that nitric oxide present, we don't get that parasympathetic um, signal. So usually what should happen is if we get a really stressful event and we're having a stress response, um, we get this surge of sympathetic activity to the cells. Uh, and here I'm talking specifically about heart cells. Um, and then we would always get a lesser um, uh, signaling of the parasympathetic as well. They're always balancing each other out. They don't allow each other to get, you know, the cell to get too strong of a message from either one. Um, but if that nitric oxide is not present, then we can have a stressful event, like, like I talked about in that study, like Christmas Eve or like a sporting event or something like that, um, that can trigger that stress response and we get a surge in the sympathetic activity in the heart cell and we don't get the parasympathetic. And so what happens then is, is just like when we get a stress response, um, like if something's threatening our life, um, your body does things to help us get away from that. And one of those things is, is converts to burning glucose um, because it's quicker to burn, uh, give us faster energy. So ideally we get away from that threat. Uh, we fight it off or get away from it quicker uh, or more efficiently. And so like that's the same kind of thing that happens in our muscles. Like when we, we go for a run, um, we get this, um, we, we start burning glycogen that's stored in our muscles and we start burning glucose and we get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, which causes muscle burn. Um, we feel that when we go for a run and, um, but luckily when we go for a run, if it's too much, we can just stop and the lactic acid and the hydrogen gets, it's pumped out, you know? Uh, but for the heart, if it gets that signal and it starts burning predominantly glucose and we get this buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions, it can't just stop beating. Um, and so that's a problem. So that burning that we feel in our chest, the angina, I think is, is the heart being forced to burn too many carbohydrates and getting that buildup of lactic acid. And if it happens to an extent where um, it creates this huge surge um, of burning glucose because of a, a stress event that happens and we're not well fat adapted, and we don't have that nitric oxide, then we can get this massive buildup of hydrogen ions and lactic acid. And that does um, one, of, one of two things. I'm not exactly sure what happens because I've seen evidence for both of these and it could be both. You know, they could happen both. But the, the big thing is that the shift in metabolism is what, what does this. So one, the buildup of lactic acid and, and hydrogen ions causes a swelling in the heart tissue. Um, and that swelling uh, changes the pressure gradient. So usually the pressure is, is higher coming from the arteries into the tissue, but now the pressure is higher in the tissue. And so the blood's not allowed to get in. And so that causes a tissue death. Um, but I've also seen that in some heart attacks, uh, or they were able to induce heart attacks, I think in mice, where they, they didn't change the oxygen at all. So they weren't depriving blood flow at all. And so the other theory is that, and there's plenty of evidence that shows that when we mess with calcium to heart cells, we get arrhythmias, we get all kinds of issues um, because calcium is what allows the muscle cells to contract. And if they can't contract, uh, we get issues. And so the other thing is that um, this lactic acid interferes with calcium's ability to um, you know, bind to troponin and then cause the, thing to the muscle uh, fibers to contract. Or it just it interferes with calcium's ability to get into the cell. Uh, for whatever reason. Um, and so that can cause the inability of the cell to contract and we get tissue death as well. And then one of the things that Baraldi found when he was looking at those autopsies is that sometimes there was evidence, like I said, that the clot happened 
um, after the heart attack happened. So it wasn't the cause, it was the result of the heart attack. And so he was um, saying that when we get that increase in pressure from the uh, swelling, uh, the lactic acid buildup, that that actually ruptures some of the stenotic processes that have already taken place uh, and pieces fall off and he finds, you know, plaques, um, you know, and it makes the situation worse. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the series of events that I think can, can lead to a large part of heart attacks um, and how, you know, all these components of our lives, you know, our, our, our stress response, our oxidative stress and toxin exposure, our, our food and what we're eating and, and fueling our bodies with can all play a role uh, in, in the, the series of events that causes uh, ischemia. Yeah, and so many causes, but all of them are pretty much environmental. They're not really genetic. Uh, I always remind people the overwhelming number of cases of chronic disease leading to early death and disability, they're not genetic diseases, they're environmental diseases. And we see that in indigenous populations that are almost absent from these diseases and early deaths. And uh, if you move those indigenous population people to our modern Western lifestyle with the metals, the toxins, the refined carb, sugar, seed oils, within a generation or two, not only do they get all the disease, but often they get it even worse than, say, Western Caucasians do. So it's, it's a point well made. This is not genetics. This is all environmental. And the question is, what can you do to optimize your environment like an indigenous person, I guess? Now, there's just one thing I'll, I'll pick up on there. When you mentioned calcium, you're talking about elemental calcium and all of the reactions it partakes in. Obviously, in contrast to the coronary calcium CT scan that sees the calcium and the plaque, just for listeners. But another interesting thing is that, uh, and we talked about this earlier, that the coronary calcium scan results showing the plaque burden has an incredible predictive power for heart attacks but also for all-cause mortality and other issues. So the coronary calcium scan result is the perfect test to predict your risk. But it, as you say, many heart attacks may be still due to the same causes. You still got there by doing things which drive up your calcium score, but not all of them by any means are due to specifically to a plaque rupture. And yet... The key thing is that when you do the wrong things, like getting oxidative stress, metal contamination, or not being able to burn fat, if you're doing any of the bad things, you're simultaneously going to tend to drive up your coronary calcium score because you're going to drive a load of plaque. So I think that I think that the the calcium score is telling us, you know, how much damage we've done to the lining of an artery because it, the body's forced to, to patch that up uh, with cholesterol and, and, and calcium and various other minerals and things. And that's because of the oxidative stress we have. So I think that that score is telling us how much oxidative stress we're exposing ourselves to. And we need to do things, change our lifestyle to minimize that oxidative stress. And then also, I think that it's, it's telling us that we're not eating enough good fats. Uh, and by good fats, I mean like uh, good sourced animal fats are going to have really high uh, vitamin K2, which is responsible for taking those minerals and shuttling them where they need to go, which is the bone. And if they can't do that, because we don't have the K2, because I think there's like a massive K2 deficiency uh, in westernized cultures, then then we're going to get even more uh, deposits uh, in our arteries because there's all these minerals floating around that can't get where they need to go. And interestingly, I've been going into the kind of biomechanics of calcification processes in the past couple of weeks because, well, to cut a long story short, we're seeing reverses of calcification. So I'm getting really interested in understanding the deeper mechanisms of depositing and indeed uh, egress or, or removing calcium from the arteries. But interestingly, I have some papers now that say that not only is the calcium put in to stabilize, it's recruited in with a full bone matrix formation process, a response to injury, if you will, which makes sense. But the calcium, ironically, the presence of calcium can cause a knock-on inflammatory effect in the surrounding tissue. So like you said earlier, everything's in balance, but things can both be a, an attempt at curing and also having non-intended inflammatory consequences too like like our immune system is triggered for inflammation to fix a problem but if it's chronic it can kind of lead to furthering the problem so it's a fascinating everything the arrow of cause kind of moves all directions really doesn't it 
Yeah, yeah, it totally does. And, and that's really interesting. I, I'm really fascinated to see what all you come up with and, and that work. Um, but yeah, uh, you also mentioned too, uh, like what we can do to, to prevent these things uh, and, and rebalance these imbalances. And so just a quick break to remind you that this podcast is only possible due to funding from David Bobbitt and the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity. For middle-aged people, it is imperative to find out your heart attack risk by getting a CT scan of the heart and your CAC score. The new IHDA.ie website has all the scan resources. Please support us by visiting and sharing widely. Knowing your score, you can take action to stop the disease process and save your own life. It can even be as simple as removing sugar, refined carbs and seed oils, i.e. processed food, from your diet. And now we return to the conversation. You were talking about how you know we don't see uh, heart disease in these in these more traditional cultures, and you know Weston Price found this when he traveled the world, and and uh, and then um, more modern studying of, of these uh, indigenous cultures show this as well as well. And so if you if you link it back to these three imbalances, lots of times these these cultures are are fueling their bodies correctly. Um, they're eating lots of high fat foods, and yes, they they eat some carbohydrates too, but um, but evidence has even shown that that um, you know, in our, in our evolution, human evolution, we were, we were relying on fat and that's what made us human. And so these modern cultures, um, you know, are not living in the environment that, you know, ancient humans were living in. So they're having to rely, I think on some, on some, uh, uh, carbohydrates and things like that, but still they're able to fat adapt. You know, they're, they're, they can go back and forth because they're not scared of fat. Like, you know, our culture is. So that's one thing. The other thing is that they're they're living out in in nature um, in much more natural environments than we are, and they're not exposed to all these toxins uh, that we're exposed to. Um, they're not exposed to the heavy metals and the plastics and the artificial fragrances and all these different things. Uh, and so their oxidative stress is much lower. They're also relying more on fat for fuel, so they're not making more oxidative stress by burning carbohydrates for fuel. Um, and so these are things that we need to try and figure out how to do within our, our modern world, uh, you know, like be very conscious of the toxins you expose yourself to because you're never going to avoid them all uh, living in the modern world. You just have to control the one you control and not freak out about the ones that you can't. Because uh, if you freak out, freak out about them, then you're driving your stress response, uh, which can also be contributing to things. And so that brings me to the stress response. Like how do we rebalance that? How do we make sure it's healthy? Uh, and I think that it's really, I mean, the work of um, Stephen Porges has shown that, you know, when we're born, our, our autonomic nervous system is not uh, fully developed and it's very reliant on uh, signals um, during our first, you know, six to eight months of life that train our nervous system what is a safe environment. And so uh, he makes the argument that it's, it's contact with mom and dad. It's, you know, a loving gaze from mom and dad and being looking into their eyes because you know, humans have this emotional connection to our hearts why we say, I love you with all my heart and, and you gave it all your heart and all this kind of stuff. Um, but that, that, that emotional state is, is conveyed through the muscles of our face, our, our emotions. Um, so I can pick up on how you're feeling about something. And so to train a, an infant on how to, to learn how to be in a safe environment is really dependent on them getting safe cues which is why we see, you know, um, you know, young children who are exposed to traumas tend to have problems later in life. And I think it's because their, um, their default state of what's safe was, was not what it was supposed to be. And so they can't get back to that, that balanced autonomic nervous system. But um, fortunately, even if, you, even if you did have trauma as a child or, or you didn't have a properly developed autonomic nervous system, there's things you can do to make it better and to rebalance it. And so it's, it's not, no surprise that, you know, contact with nature, like those indigenous tribes would have had a lot more of, has been shown to rebalance the autonomic nervous system and, and stimulate the vagus nerve, as is said, um, in, in health circles, because uh, the vagus nerve is what's conveying that um, autonomic nervous system signal. Also, gut healing has been shown to, to um, uh, stimulate the vagus nerve and promote autonomic nervous system balance. And to me, that's because uh, our gut is kind of one way that our body signals what type of environment we're in. Is it safe or is it threatening? Uh, you know, are we, are we starving for food? Or are we not? Um, are we ingesting things that, 
could be damaging, like, you know, the, the processed foods, you know, that the, with the glutens and the, uh, and the sugars and the, uh, um, different things that damage the gut lining. If, if our gut's a hostile environment, our brain's getting a signal that we're in a hostile environment. Uh, and it's chronically stimulating that, that sympathetic, uh, activity. So gut healing and just creating a less hostile environment, you guys have been shown to increase, um, autonomic nervous system balance as well. So, uh, lots of different things we can do. Uh, we just kind of, kind of take back control of your life and, and learn, learn what it takes, you know? Yeah. And actually all of those things as well that affect the vagus or the sympathetic or parasympathetic, all the things you'll do to help with that through gut permeability and through everything else they'll all tie back to things you should be doing for your hormonal balance and for your general health as well so you're going to be eating lower carb you know non-processed foods no sugars no seed oils you know ideally no gluten and you'll be getting exercise you'll be out in the fresh air and the sunlight so it's kind of like you can argue around the relative contribution of stress and contribution of direct you know oxidative stress or or hormonal effects and imbalances from eating the wrong things and living a bad life but the kind of solutions or root causes you'll fix in your life are always going to be the same cluster of kinds of things which is kind of makes it easy you don't need to know exactly which driver is the bigger one you just need to know well what are the cluster of things in my life i need to do to maximize my health and reduce all of these problematic vectors. But you know, it just, uh, I'm thinking now, my mind is going back to the heart and cancer. So you very well described their potential source of many heart attacks. And a big part of it is the heart being forced to switch towards a glucose burning metabolism away from the preferential fat burning because it absolutely i was amazed six seven years ago when i learned that the heart was an extremely fat fuel intensive organ and it preferred fat in all circumstances were possible so this movement of the heart being forced to move towards glucose metabolism and build up of lactate hydrogen ions being pushed towards that because of bad things how does that tie into the why we don't really have heart cancer in heart tissue question? Yeah, so, you know, I think that it, it, heart cancers are very, very rare. Uh, they're the rarest form of cancer. Um, and, um, and I think that it's because when, like I was talking about before, the, the heart has these mechanisms in place that, that make sure that I think it's the last thing to, to be forced to burn glucose. Uh, that and, and the brain is probably second. But um, it, the heart specifically. And so I think that when it is forced to burn glucose, the reason that it's, it's trying so hard to prevent it from burning predominant glucose is because when it does, we get a heart attack. So obviously that's more life-threatening than initially starting the process of cancer. Like cancer is not going to kill you right away. Um, and so what I think is going on is that, you know, there's no, there's no chance for the heart to develop cancer, you know, because when it's forced to burn glucose, a heart attack happens. And so, you know, uh, there's just no, there's no chance for that process to happen. And I think that, um, I I've done some looking and, and a lot of the hand, the cancers that do happen in the heart are, um, like they're like connected tissue cancers. They're happening like on the periphery of the heart. They're not really happening in the, um, the muscle cells, but some do happen in the muscle cells. I mean, that's, that's a thing. Um, but lots of them happening on the periphery. So it's, it's, I think that the, the metabolically active, um, tissue of the heart, which has the highest levels of mitochondria, um, uh, some of the highest levels in the entire body, because it's so metabolically active, never really get the chance. Uh, like those mitochondria don't necessarily get uh, damaged to the extent where cancer would develop, because they're, they're allowed to burn fat, uh, they're preferably allowed to burn fat, and the body makes sure that happens. And so it just never, it never gets to the point where mitochondria is damaged enough that they can't use oxygen and cancer develops. It's a really interesting concept and an hypothesis. And when I saw it I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was struck by it because I knew all about the heart in terms of preferentially burning fat. And, and I largely knew about the problem with its force to burn glucose, but I never put it together like that. And there's a controversy around cancer being a, a metabolic disease based on mitochondrial damage and dysfunction. You know, a lot of the world's cancer business likes to see it as a genetic disease with magical genetic treatments 
though the last 30 years have been very disappointing in that regard. Uh, but I was struck once by, I don't know, was it Seafried? I think it was Seafried. And they did an experiment in the lab and they got cancer cells and they got the nucleus from malignant cells and put them into other cells. And cancer did not result in the other cells by swapping the nucleus and all the genetic material with all of its supposed, you know, genetic issues causing cancer. And then they took the cytoplasm or the cell volume from the malignant cells, which had all the mitochondria, and they put that in a healthy cell and left the healthy cell with its own nucleus, all its genetics, and they turned those cells, normal cells, cancerous, or they died and self uh, eliminated themselves. And they also did the other side, vice versa. And they pretty much elegantly showed that whatever about your beliefs on cancer, it's largely centered in the cytoplasm, the mitochondria and the cell contents. And it's not actually really the genetics, but cancer damage to mitochondria and damage to the cells can cause them to or generate enormous radical oxygen species, which will damage all the genetic material in the cells. So you're going to see a ton of genetic damage in cancers of all different types, even within the same tumor. So if you kind of take that and say, okay, it's primarily mitochondrial problem, like you say, that the mitochondria become dysfunctional, and that's kind of one of the big things in cancer. It's intriguing that, yes, the heart by the mitochondria being given a much more fat-burning preferential environment because of the heart's needs, combined with if the mitochondria do become a problem and the heart begins to burn more glucose when it doesn't want to, you're going to go towards having a heart attack, so you don't really get the chance to develop the cancer in the heart muscle. It's kind of very attractive intuitively if, if you know some of the biochemistry around it. Yeah, and I, I had never like put it together either until somebody uh, very recently asked me, you know, why is heart cancer so rare? And I immediately thought, oh, well, because it never has to burn glucose. Um, but I never asked myself the question either until that person asked me. Um, but yeah, it's, it, that's, that's so interesting, you know, what Seafree did and what you described there, because, you know, it's, it's cancer. People say, oh, it's a genetic disease. It's a mutation. Uh, and it, it sort of is, but the mutation only happens because the, the, the environment triggers it to do so. Uh, like I said, it's kind of this survival mechanism. It's an epigenetic um, signaling uh, from this, this hostile environment in the cell that triggers those oncogenes to turn on so that the cell can survive short term. And I'm, my guess is that the cell is hoping that the, the uh, situation resolves itself before it has to kill off its, its host, its, its larger you know, um, uh, tissue that it's in and body that it's in. Uh, but yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a really interesting uh, thought process and I, I hope that uh, we find more and more information about it. Yeah, and if you then, if you were to summarize, uh, Stephen, so in terms of dietary patterns, we know the indigenous peoples, you know, some of them were higher carbohydrate, but then they were eating from birth with a good environment, sun, you know, social inclusion and, and no contaminants and usually nutrient dense shellfish or fish or other foods and animal foods as well. They had a load of advantages and exercise and being out there in the sun and the air. So I guess from birth, if you're living in an excellent environment like that, conducive to health, then if you have to rely on quite a lot of unprocessed, natural, real food carbohydrates from the earth, you may never develop a major problem. And these guys as well, even the higher carb catavans, uh, you know, or semaine, I think they were highish on carb. Their blood glucose remained dead low. Their insulin was low. They had zero metabolic syndrome. So they were, they were managing to eat quite a lot of unprocessed real food carbohydrates. But if you take the modern population, let's be honest, the majority now of over 45s in America from CDC figures, maybe 65% are essentially diabetic from glucose measures. So if the modern Western population, the people most at risk in their 40s and 50s are mostly diabetic, the diet, what diet would you prescribe for them to minimize the risk for chronic disease? This phenomenon in the heart you describe, what kind of diet for those type of people who are at the most risk? 
Yeah, I, I, I really like that line of thinking. I mean, I, uh, I wrote a book about called The Health Evolution, and it's basically explaining how there's this mismatch between our you know, Western you know, environment and our evolved physiology, and those people living in that environment uh, would have had all these the benefits of their body developing in the proper environment. And so you're right that they they probably can rely on uh, carbohydrates a little bit more. And I was reading a book by uh, Jared Diamond, who spent a lot of time in um, New Guinea, uh, looking at those tribes, and he said that lots of them eat you know yams, like they're a large proportion of their diet is yams, and they're also eating um, animals and, and lots of animal fat, but they're eating that as well, and they're perfectly healthy. And so it's it becomes difficult when you're recommending, you know, what I think every, like everybody should eat, you know, um, because it, it depends on, uh, I mean, it depends on where your ancestors came from, you know, like, and, and if they developed the, those, um, those genes, cause some people are more tolerant to carbs than others. Um, but I think that if we're talking about, you know, a, a person in the Western, Western society that, that is having trouble, uh, with their health, um, I, I could probably relate it back all to metabolic health. And the way we fix metabolism, I believe, is a, is a, um, a higher fat ketogenic diet, uh, at least making your body um, learn how to do that. And then once you do that, um, I mean, I like to stay in ketosis a lot. Um, but like once you do that, it's, it's okay if you go out of ketosis. And some people would say it's even better if you have like cyclical ketosis. Um, but um, you always want to make sure that you get back into ketosis. So your body doesn't lose the ability to do it. So, you know, you may go on vacation and, um, and, and splurge on a bunch of carbs and take yourself out of ketosis. Just when you get back, make sure you, you train your body to go back to it and don't lose the ability to get in ketosis, um, by like intermittent fasting or, you know, total carbohydrate restriction, like make sure your body's always able to do that. Um, I think that's incredibly important for, um, preventing all kinds of chronic conditions like we've talked about all the diseases of metabolism which i think there are many yeah and i think yeah for the modern majority metabolically diseased even recent figures showed 88 percent in one study of adult americans uh, have at least one marker of metabolic dysfunction so on some levels it's nearly nine out of ten adults now have some degree of problem uh, so high healthy fat intermittent fasting going in and out of ketosis, staying metabolically flexible, it, it just seems to be a no-brainer. I guess, though, you'd, you'd probably agree as well, a tendency towards, I think you mentioned the phrase earlier, healthy fats. So, I mean, grass-reared, healthy meats without antibiotics or other toxins and hormones, you know, fish, avocado, olives, you know, all the healthy fats. So it's not just a junk food high-fat diet, obviously. Yeah, we don't want it to be processed. You know, those um, mm. the seed oils are are a terrible decision um, because that is not natural fat. And I always tell people, like, you know, we have to do this chemical process to get an oil or a fat from from these seeds, and 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 the same with things like almond milk. That's a very chemical process that that doesn't naturally happen. We can't squeeze an almond with our fingers and fat come out. Um, but you know, the the fats that nature nature makes, uh, you know, whether it's the lard or beef tallows or or the butters, if you want to do dairy or, um, or ghee, uh, or just the, the bone marrows, all these different animal source fats, you know, we, we should not be scared of saturated fat. Um, and we should, we should realize how our body loves it. And it, it often comes with, um, you know, fat soluble vitamins, which are, you know, there's a huge deficiency of those as well. Uh, but we just got to make sure that we're staying away from those processed fats, the ones made by, uh, factories, and going back to the ones that, that nature made and that come naturally. So and naturally and packaged largely as they were in their original form as well. Like you say, too much extraction of liquefied, uh, pure fats, you know, perhaps losing some of their nutrients, not a great idea. I'm not so sure about, you know, piling in extra oils into my coffee or anything. I'd rather get them from the real food, you know, ideally. I guess the holy triad for me, and I've often mentioned it, is the triad of disease, sugars, refined carbs, and seed oils, vegetable oils. And those three are honored by inclusion hugely in most modern ultra-processed foods. And that's, you know, that's where a lot of our dietary-related problems are coming from, I guess. If you just eliminated those three and the ultra-processed foods, 
and ate real food, you might not be too worried about being hardcore ultra low carb. You know, that might be just enough for the majority. Yeah. So like I work with people online and, and that's like, I don't do a ton of testing unless they really want it at first, because I know that if I can eliminate these things first, um, these problematic foods or um, help them maybe detox their environment a little bit and help them work with their stress response. Um, I know that they're going to achieve a high level of health. And if at that point we still have some issues, okay, now let's do some testing and see what specifics are going on. But the majority of people, yeah, you take out those problematic foods, like you mentioned, the, the grains and the sugars and the seed oils, then yeah, we're going to get um, uh, a much higher level of health. And it's, it's more about, I think, I, I think that people are, are really obsessed with like getting all the, like enough of the good things. And like their whole day becomes about uh, getting all the right foods and making sure they're getting all the, the nutrients they need and everything. But it's like really just remove the ones that are not serving you. I think that's more important sometimes than making sure and, and stressing out about trying to get all the things you need. Because when you remove those, you end up a absorbing a lot more of the things you need because some of those foods actually interfere with absorption. Uh, and B, you just, there's just more, um, uh, more room, uh, and you're, and you're eating more of the foods that are, are higher quality. I agree, Stephen. And you know, in terms of supplements, when people, they constantly ask this question, there's a handful maybe that are really worth having and making sure you're high in. Maybe the foods are not so replete with them anymore, modern foods. If, but if you get vitamin D from UV and the sun, ideally, if you get magnesium and vitamin K2, MK4, MK7, and maybe selenium and a, f a few others, uh, and DHA, EPA, I guess cod liver oil was always a great boost if you don't really like the fish. But you don't have to become obsessed with every single vitamin and mineral. Just take kind of the big three or four and either really target foods that have them uh, or maybe supplement. But it doesn't have to be rocket science. I'd agree. Yeah, I think that uh, supplements, you know, people overdo them. And the supplement mm. industry is just as bad as, as the pharmaceutical yeah. industry uh, in some cases. And people make the argument that, um, you know, uh, people living a long time ago, these indigenous cultures, like they don't use supplements and they're perfectly healthy. And I, I would agree with that. However, you know, they didn't have access to them. And, you know, I think at a fundamental level, life is about struggle and any advantage you can get, um, especially when you're living in a modern world that is bombarding you with these toxins and unnatural stresses, that sometimes we could, we could use supplements, but we just have to be very picky and not rely on them it should start with diet start with food um, and then we can kind of boost things a little bit because because we live in the modern world and we have the ability to do that uh, we can you know selectively choose uh, certain supplements that that could help uh, us achieve that, that higher level of health yep choosing wildly or not wildly choosing wisely <laughs> of course and you know i know our time has come up now to the end and uh, you also just released today a blog and i just saw it this morning on why we get um atherosclerosis in arteries not veins and i really love that question and i have my thoughts but we'll return to that in a later podcast i think so Great stuff. So thanks a lot, Stephen, Dr. Stephen Hussey, and uh, we'll catch you next time. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen, a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie on the far right, and myself and Dr. Gerber's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, on the left. Otherwise, please do subscribe to the audio podcast. Thanks.